Let's open the Scriptures together to the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, page 1134. I'm just going to read a few verses uh, from 22 through 40. Jesus is dealing here with the crowds of people in Galilee, and our text, which will be drawn from John chapter 4, is when He first enters Galilee and encounters a certain reaction from the crowd. So this couple of chapters later helps us to understand what was going on in chapter 4. So we pick things up at chapter 6, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with His disciples, but that His disciples had gone away alone. And this is, of course, after the feeding of the 5,000. People are wondering where Jesus is. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor His disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are not, uh, sorry, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, the last portion, beginning at verse 43. Continuing then our series of sermons on this gospel, last time we dealt with Jesus' journey through Samaria, but Samaria was a, a pit stop. He was on His way to Galilee, and so we pick up the story in verse 43. 
After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. That's as far as our text will go. In response to the preaching, we'll sing again from Psalm 56. This time the stanzas 4 and 5. In God I trust, to Him my praise I render. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you need to see before you believe? If someone tells you something that is new to you, do you right away believe them, or do you need to see the evidence first? And if you then see the evidence, do you actually accept it, and from that point forward, believe what the person says? How about when it comes to the Lord? Do you need to see something tangible, some results, before you can believe what God says to you? These are the questions and the issues that lie beneath the surface in our text. As the Lord Jesus returns to Cana in Galilee, He continues to give signs. He continues to provide the evidence about what He's been saying about Himself. And then he calls everyone, also us today, to take him at his word. That'll be our theme this morning as I bring you this word of God. True faith is learning to take Jesus at his word. True faith is learning to take Jesus at his word. It means that we need to move beyond what we see and we need to trust him and everything he says. Well, our text opens up in verse 43, telling us that after spending two days with the Samaritans in Sychar, Jesus and his disciples, they continue their journey north to Galilee as planned. 
And for a moment, we should just pull back the camera and realize that in all likelihood, John the Baptist has by this point been arrested by King Herod and thrown in jail. We know that he was thrown in jail from the other Gospels, John himself, and that this Gospel doesn't say as much, but he knows about it. You might recall that in the Gospel of John, we learn about that overlap period when both Jesus and John were working simultaneously. So John, the Gospel writer, is the only Gospel writer that tells us about this period. He does it in chapter 1, 2, and 3, and somewhere in chapter 4, that overlap period comes to an end. We know from the other three Gospels that once John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus went north to Galilee, which is happening in our text, and he spent most of his time up north in Galilee, and our text then is describing that, that re-entry into Galilee after John's arrest. The Gospel writer mentions John the Baptist in the past tense in chapter 5, verse 33, so that tells the reader, tells us that he knows that John was arrested. He doesn't tell us the story very likely because he knows it was told in the other Gospels, and John wrote his Gospel much, much later than the other three Gospel writers. So we just need to understand the overlap period has come to an end. And we find Jesus returning to Galilee. He's returning to the relative safety of Galilee. There's a safety issue here. Why? Well, because in chapter 4, verse 1, John, the gospel writer, tells us that Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples. And because the Pharisees learned this, Jesus heads north for Judea, for Judea or for Galilee. So the Pharisees were presenting a threat to Jesus, and Jesus finds a certain refuge in Galilee. Why? Well, Galilee, as we've seen from earlier sermons, Galilee was some distance from Judea where the Pharisees were concentrated, about a three-day journey. But also, Galilee was considered obscure, it was unimportant, it was kind of an area you could go to and people would forget about you. So whenever uh, Jesus comes south, and he did travel south for the various feasts, the leaders in the south would become agitated with his preaching and his teaching and his healing. But so long as he stayed in the north, they more or less were uh, content, or maybe not content, they were less bothered that he was up in the north. And partly, that partly explains why Jesus went to Galilee, but there's another reason found in verse 44, kind of a strange comment that John puts in our text, for Jesus Himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, it's well known that Jesus made that statement from the other Gospels. He made it about His hometown of Nazareth which, you might recall, rejected him. They wanted to throw him off a cliff. Remember that? Luke 4. And yet, that very fact that his hometown and his home community would reject him is kind of a curious thing to say that that would want to make Jesus go into Galilee. 
I mean, if Jesus knew that Nazareth would reject him, if Jesus knew that Galilee would even reject him, why go there? I mean, why go where you wouldn't be appreciated? And indeed, it's not just the folks of Galilee that turn their back on Jesus. Elsewhere in, in that region, it's the same thing. Now, to be sure, at first, there were large crowds following Jesus all around. But as time goes on, the, the crowds, they change their tune toward Jesus. Luke tells us that other towns up in Galilee rejected him too. Chorazin, he mentioned, Bethsaida, Capernaum, which Jesus had made his new hometown. All are said to have failed to repent and believe. Jesus even states that publicly in Luke 10. Even John, the gospel writer, tells us in chapter 6, we read that, that it wouldn't be long for these Galilean crowds to grow cold toward Jesus, to question him, to turn away from him. So again, John, the gospel writer in verse 44, is just telling us that Jesus heads north because there was relative safety up there by comparison to Judea in the south. The reception up north was going to be tepid, which meant that the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders in the south wouldn't feel as threatened by Jesus, at least not for a while. So that's a little bit the the big picture here, but now we might wonder why, why would the Galilean crowds eventually turn on Jesus? What went wrong? Well, Jesus hints at that in verse 45 of our text, so, or John hints at it. So when Jesus came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So John is hooking back into something he had told us in chapter 2, verse 23, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. He says these Galileans were there too, and like the people in the south, they had seen what Jesus had done. Chapter 2, verse 23, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Remember in John's gospel, the miracles are called signs. Also included in that would have been the cleansing of the temple. So people, chapter 2, people were impressed by what they saw. That's what John the gospel writer is telling us. That's what drew the crowds in Judea. That's what draws the crowds in Galilee. The people liked what they saw down there in Jerusalem, and they were hungry to see more. Jesus has come back. Let's go check it out. This is the miracle worker. They believed in the wonder of Jesus' miracles. But did they believe in Jesus? That was already the issue in chapter 2 when the author told us back then, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself, that's chapter 2 verse 24, did not literally believe in the crowds because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man for he knew what was in man. So the crowds believed in what Jesus could do but did they believe in who Jesus was? That's the same question facing, that faced Nicodemus. Chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, 
He's a representative of the crowd of believers. He says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God because nobody could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He says, we saw the sign. Signs. So we know you're from God. You're a teacher. But in the following conversation, Jesus turns it around. He says, but Nicodemus, do you believe that I am more than a teacher? Do you believe that I am what John the Baptist has testified of me, that I am the Son of God, that I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Nicodemus, do you believe that? And John, or rather Jesus, even tells Nicodemus point blank in chapter 3, verse 11, you, Nicodemus, do not receive our testimony. So John, the gospel writer, has been indicating to us that the faith of the crowds in Judea, the faith of Nicodemus, and now the faith of the Galilean crowds in our text, it was based on what they saw. It was based on sight. And that's not enough. That comes out as our text unfolds. The writer tells us in verse 46 that an official whose son was ill traveled from Capernaum to come to where Jesus was staying in that little village of Cana. We can be a bit more specific about this man. The Greek indicates that he was a royal official. Now, the only royalty in Galilee was Herod the Tetrarch, who was known by the unofficial title as, uh, as King, King Herod. So this, is, this official is somehow a servant of King Herod located in Capernaum. This would be the same King Herod that has just arrested John. So very ironically, some official in King Herod's palace or service was so compelled by what he heard about Jesus that he was willing to travel the near 30 kilometers from Capernaum at sea level up long hills to little Cana to beg Jesus to come with him to perform a special miracle for him. Very clearly, that's what's driving this man, the potential for a specific miracle. Verse 47, he went to Jesus and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And when you read that, you think, well, that seems a reasonable thing to do, doesn't it? I mean, tell me, brothers and sisters, what would you have done if you were in this man's place? If you were this father in Capernaum, you love your son. It pains you deeply that your son lies so sick on his bed. All the doctors you've tried have not helped a bit. He's gotten worse. Your boy is lying on his deathbed when suddenly you hear of a man whom many in the community have seen heal the sick and even cast out demons. Wouldn't you jump up right away yourself and, and hop in your chariot and race off as fast as you could to find this man and beg him to come? Don't we sometimes still wish we had that option today? to race off in our car and find the healer 
So the father's actions seem perfectly understandable to us, but then we are we're taken aback, aren't we? We're kind of thunderstruck by what Jesus says to the man in reply. He's speaking, remember, to a stressed-out parent. And Jesus says, verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Kind of a rebuke, isn't it? Unless you see miracles, you're not going to believe. Doesn't that sound rather harsh, considering who's asking for the healing? Isn't it callous to speak to this desperate, heavy-hearted father like that? I mean, didn't Jesus say of himself that he's gentle and lowly? Isn't he the compassionate good shepherd? Is this a, a compassionate response to an anxious dad? Well, it is. When you understand there's a bigger problem that Jesus is addressing. A bigger problem, way bigger than this very, very sick child, for unless this man and all who hear Jesus, unless they come to develop a true faith, they could not be saved from eternal death. That's what Jesus was after. That's what he's got his eye on. And this was not just a problem of this individual man who's come from Capernaum, for notice that Jesus, in addressing the man, uses the plural you. You'll have to look at the footnote there. In Greek, you can make you a plural, just like you have that in French. So in Greek, it's very clear he's addressing, he's speaking to the man, but he's addressing the crowds. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you people will not believe. In other words, Jesus is saying, you've got a miracle-based faith. You've got a sign-based belief. But that is, in the end, no faith at all. Jesus will tell these same Galilean crowds in chapter 6, verse 36, which we read, he'll, he'll say it to them pretty straight up. The same crowds that had just eaten their fill of the, the loaves and the fish that had been multiplied miraculously by Jesus, and they still ask Him for a sign. Did you hear that when we read that? So Jesus says to them, verse 36, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. You've got to move beyond what you see. Move beyond the signs to the one performing the signs. You have to go beyond the results that you desire to behold and put your trust in me, says Jesus. This is what he had said to Nicodemus, chapter 3, verse 16, whoever believes in God's Son should not perish but have eternal life. You have to believe in me, not in the miracles. That's what Jesus is doing with this cold shower response in our text. Royal official from Capernaum, do you believe in me as Savior of the world? Savior of your soul, too. Or do you only believe in what I can do for your son? You 
It's a question that comes to you and to me still, still today. Do we run to Jesus because of what He can do for us here and now? Problem solving something? Or do we run to Jesus because He gives us eternal life with God? Are we thinking short-term results, the things we can see and measure in everyday life, or are we banking on a long-term everlasting relationship of peace and joy with our Maker? Do we believe in Jesus because He can improve something in our life right now, or because we love Him and want to spend eternity with Him? Do we love the things Jesus can do for us? Or do we love Jesus? Full stop. True faith is the latter. True faith is moving past the things we can see and quantify, past the results that our eyes can take in, to trust Jesus and then everything He says to us. It's learning to take Jesus at His word. That is where Jesus is leading this man and also us. His reply to the man sounds abrupt and it, it comes across like a slap in the face, but you know there are times that's exactly what we need. Sometimes we need to be to, to have a jolt to push us away from error and loss toward truth and blessing. That's what Jesus is doing. The man coming to Jesus knows something about Jesus, but he's, he's stuck in what he knows. And he's desperate in his circumstance. He has come hoping to escort this rabbi back to Capernaum, which, by the way, was about a seven-hour journey on foot. For his son to get better, the rabbi needs to lay hands on his son like he had done to so many other people. That's why this man asks him to come with him. The father had heard from many witnesses that Jesus would go about healing, and it was always he put a hand on this one, or they touched, they came up and touched him. So he just assumes the same formula has to apply for, for this uh, miracle to happen. Jesus has to come and touch and lay his hands on his son. That's what he's thinking. And, Jesus, and the man doesn't even try to argue with Jesus' statement to him. He, he gives no defense for seeking a miracle, but he simply repeats his frantic plea. You can see how stuck he is. Sir, come down before my child dies. Everything hinges on you coming now to help me. Otherwise, my son might die. Can you relate to the anxiety of this parent? Maybe you've had a seriously sick child yourself. And your anxiety has overwhelmed you and, it, and it's got you wrapped up tighter than a drum. All you can think about is getting the child well. 
You pray and ask God for a healing, for a miracle even. And soon, Lord, and maybe, or maybe you're in some kind of other difficulty, a financial pickle, a serious relationship trouble. Whatever it is, it's got you fraught with worry about how this is going to end, and, and you go to the Lord and you cry out to the Lord to fix this. Lord, do something right now, please. You have to act now or it'll be too late. What if the Lord said to you in that, that moment, trust me, I will help you, but you have to leave it with me. Trust me, I'll work it out. If the Lord answered you that way, would you accept it? Would that satisfy you? Would that calm your heart? Could you go your way in peace and confidence? Because that's basically how the Lord Jesus answers the official when he issues a surprising word to him in verse 50, go, your son will live. Go, your son will live. I hear the compassion coming out now. The Lord Jesus was not at all being mean-spirited toward this fellow. He was intending to bring healing to his child, but along the way, Jesus was teaching this man to trust. For the Lord presents this man now with, with a very big ask. The ESV translated, translates it as a future. Go, your son will live, which is already quite something to say to this, this man in his stressful situation. But actually, the Greek is in the present tense, Go, your son lives. So he's actually saying a bit more. He's not saying, I'm gonna, I'll heal him in a little bit. No, no, go, your son lives. I've already healed him. You can see the challenge for the father, right? The father understands what this means. Jesus is saying, go, your son's illness is gone. Go, I've done what you've asked of me. I've healed your son so you can go in peace. The man's got no proof. All he has is Jesus' word. It's going to take a seven-hour journey to verify what Jesus says, and the day is so far gone that the man wouldn't get home till the next day that's a long time to wait to find out if Jesus is actually what he said is true. All this man knows so far about the miraculous power of Jesus is that it requires Jesus to, to touch the sick person. So the question for the, the official from Capernaum is, how can I be sure that my son is actually healed? Can I take this rabbi's word? I just traveled 30 kilometers, seven hours? Or should I continue to beg him to come with me to heal my boy in front of my eyes? Tell me, brothers and sisters, what would you have done if you were in that man's shoes? 
Jesus is saying to the man with his, with his dismissal, he's saying, do you trust me? Do you trust what I say to you, that your son is well? So would you do it? Would you leave Jesus' side there in Cana and start to walk seven hours back home to Capernaum on the basis of Jesus' simple word, go, your son lives? This is trust. This is faith. This is true belief. Accepting what the Lord Jesus says without having proof before your eyes. I trust that Jesus died on the cross and rose to life for the complete forgiveness of my sins even though I've never seen either of those two events. I've never even seen Jesus in the flesh, but do I trust that the Lord knows best, that the Lord will do what is best when it comes to the health of my child, my spouse, my parent? God says Lots of things in His Word. God says in His Word that nothing happens by chance, that all things work together for the good of those who love Him, also my good, and for His glory. Do I believe that to be true even when I can't see the evidence for that right now? Jesus urges us he urges me to let go of anxiety over health and money and food and clothing, Matthew 6. And he urges me to seek first the kingdom of my Father, and he says, all these things that you need, I'll give them to you. So don't worry about those things. Focus on the kingdom. But... I haven't got a job right now, and bills are coming due real quick. Do I trust what Jesus says? Is Jesus, is God worthy of trust? Am I content not to go by what I see, but by what I hear from every word that my Lord and Savior speaks, knowing, trusting that He has His hand on the wheel. You see, that's the journey, the real journey that the man from Capernaum had to make, the spiritual journey. It's one we've got to make with Him. Will you give your heart over to a, a quiet, contented trust in your God, for he is exactly who he says he is. That's the, the fundamental claim of Jesus Christ that we, we have to accept. And when we accept it, 
then that, that genuine act of trust, it will fall into place, it will click in our hearts, just like it does for this Father. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, Jesus talked about the Spirit's work in chapter 3, so we, we know what's going on here. The Holy Spirit went to work in this man's heart just on hearing Jesus' words, go, your son lives. And then we read this very heartening response of the man, verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. The man had gotten beyond sight to, what, to believe what he heard from Jesus. That's true faith. He didn't know any facts yet about his son. He hadn't had any verification that his son was well. But he took Jesus at his word. The word that Jesus spoke was good enough for him. Is it good enough for you too, beloved? As the man made his way home to Capernaum, we read that at a certain moment, through his servants coming to meet him, he was able to verify the precise time at which his son was healed, namely the time when Jesus had spoken the word, and so the man's faith was confirmed and strengthened. That's what the sign is supposed to do, not draw attention to the, to the sign itself, but to the sign giver. The signs are supposed to strengthen faith in the Lord. It's supposed to draw our hearts to the Lord who gave the sign. And then this, this man's wife and his servants and his now healed son all come to believe in Jesus, whom they have not seen yet, because of the word spoken in Cana and now confirmed in Capernaum. You see, brothers and sisters, this, this royal official, he, he trekked off to Cana begging for his son to be healed, but he ended up what? He ended up with a whole lot more, didn't he? He ended up receiving his son back, not just to health, but to life, life everlasting. And his wife and his servants, they all believed in Jesus. They all put their trust in Jesus. Do you see now how gracious and merciful the Lord Jesus is? That earlier jolt, that earlier slap in the face, just like we read from Psalm 141, it led to something great for this man and his family. John finishes our text, verse 54, with a comment. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So the writer of the gospel makes a link back to the first sign in Cana of Galilee. You remember that? That was the changing of water into wine. And he wants us to see that the two signs work together and the material that he's recorded between these signs were meant to understand it as a package. Because remember, John is writing this book, this gospel, for a purpose. John chapter 20, he wants people to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and believing, have life in His name. So he's saying, look at the evidence as he moves along with his gospel. Look at the evidence I've provided for you. The first sign, changing of water into wine, that was only in front of the eyes of the disciples. This sign, now it's public. The first sign was a message. The King has arrived. Time to celebrate. The kingdom of heaven is here. 
And the material between chapter 2 and chapter, end of chapter 4 tells us a lot about the nature of this king. He has authority over the temple. Remember, he went into the temple and cleansed the temple. That's his structure. In fact, Jesus is the greater temple. He came also, says chapter 3, to give up his life to death so that all who believe in him will have eternal life. Their sins will be forgiven. And Jesus brings a change in worship. Remember last time? He wants people who worship in spirit and in truth. He's going to give his Holy Spirit to people so they can worship him rightly and truthfully. And Jesus even extends life to the Gentiles like the Samaritans. And now in our text, with this second sign, He shows that He has power to save life just by a spoken word. So the Gospel writer is telling us the evidence is right there. I put it all together in a package for you. Jesus is exactly who He says He is, Son of God, Lamb of God, forgiver of sins, Savior of the world. Don't wait to see it before you believe it, because then it'll be too late. No, no. Believe it now, and one day you and I, and actually the whole world, will see it as our King Jesus comes back on the clouds with all of heaven's glory to bring about the great and full salvation of the Lord. Believe it now to see it later. Amen.